So Jesus and his disciples, no doubt knackered from the trek from Jerusalem to Galilee, collapse on the green grass of the mountainous countryside of Galilee. No doubt some of them eager to catch a power nap in this momentary peace and quiet. Some of them maybe just making daisy chains on the grass. When all of a sudden, special time with the lads is interrupted as on the horizon, they perceive Jesus' growing fan brace approaching. You can almost hear some of them groan as they just think, give us peace. And yet, Jesus comes up with the novel idea of feeding all 5,000 of them. <laughs> uh, he says, surely we can feed this lot. And it's not even that we're told they're hungry. He just grasps the initiative and starts to play the generous host. Now, Philip gives away that he's got some Scottish blood in him because he starts to calculate the financial implications of such a suggestion. You can see him working out, okay, Jesus, even if we shopped at Lidl and had over half a year's salary, we wouldn't have enough even to give everyone a cocktail sausage. And then Andrew, dear Andrew, does one of those things where he does the speaking thing before the thinking thing. He finds a little boy with a packed lunch and stands him in front of the shadow of 5,000 people and says, Jesus, will this help? You can almost hear the other disciples snigger. Dear Andrew. I mean, the kid's got nothing more than a happy meal and you're suggesting he can feed the 5,000. But Jesus takes this poxy snack and he just starts to distribute it one by one. Until every single belly sings with satisfaction and could not eat another bite. And like every granny, he overcaters to the count of 12 basketfuls. Now, the crowd, unsurprisingly, are delighted. But in their uh, reaction, Jesus notes some kind of misunderstanding. And rather than take their applause, he withdraws. You might say he escapes. His disciples, realizing that he's gone AWOL, decide to make their own way to Capernaum. They jump in a boat and they start making their way across the water. Now it was dark and Jesus was no longer with them. Now this is new for the disciples. You see, so far their discipleship in John has been characterized by being with Jesus. And yet now it is not only dark, which is always a bad sign in John, but Jesus is not with them. And it's almost as if, like a thriller movie, the tension rises. We are told the wind grew stronger and the storm grew wilder. Yet that didn't terrify them. They were seasoned fishermen. So they plowed on. And three and a half miles off the shore, you can imagine the sweat pouring off them and their hands blistered from the oars when all of a sudden they see Jesus strolling on the surf. And now they're terrified. <laughs> now they scream like little girls. They're in front of a storm and yet nothing. And yet when they see Jesus walking on the water, terrified. Until he speaks a word of self-revelation. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And once their screams have subsided, they welcome him into the boat. And immediately, 
miraculously, they reach the shore where they were heading. Well, the crowd of 5,000, realizing that Jesus has gone missing, are still giddy with excitement. They want to make him king, even by force. They're so excited. They've got the bunting up. They've got their little flags ready to make him king. And now they even slightly creepily stalk him over land and lake just to be with him. But look at verse 66. At this point, at the start of the narrative, they are so eager to find Jesus. In verse 66, we read this. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In the course of a matter of minutes, Jesus' Twitter following goes from 5,000 to 12. In this conversation, he has said something sufficiently offensive that the majority crowd never want to see his face again. He has said something that makes him in verse 60 say, this is a hard teaching. That word hard is actually harsh. It's not hard to understand. It's unpleasant. And so they turn their back on him. There is this minority though. There is this chosen 12 who see Jesus and see in him something that is exclusively superior to anything else that they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now tonight, by the end of our time together, there may be some of you who find this a hard, harsh teaching. And so you may never come back. But I trust and I hope that there will be some, like the 12, who leave tonight saying, do you know what? Where else would I go? And claiming this sufficiency of Jesus as your own. See, what intrigues me about this passage is both groups, the 12 and the majority, hear the same conversation. And yet, some are repelled and some are attracted. Do you know that old saying? It is the same sun that, also, that both melts the ice and hardens the clay. Well, in this passage, it is the same sun, S-O-N, the same words of the sun that offend some and attract others. That's intriguing. And so tonight, we're just going to ask two questions. We're going to ask, on the one hand, why do the majority turn their back? And then secondly, why do some, or why can't some conceive of leaving? Why can some not leave. And it's the same sun that both melts the ice and hardens the clay. Both groups see on the one hand his identity and on the other hand his cross. So first question, why do you, the majority, turn back? Uh, Look at verse 41. It's given away by the two times that you, majority, grumble and argue. Verse 41, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? You see, they take offense firstly at the identity of Jesus. Now, they did acknowledge in some ways that he was slicker than your average punter. They had just tried to make him king by force. And they also see some parallel with their great ancestral leader, Moses. Just as Moses gave us bread in the wilderness, so too Jesus has given us bread. But they take offense when Jesus starts to, in some ways, dismiss Moses. 
Some would say he is better than Moses. They take more offense when Jesus continues to call God his father. And for them, that was just straight down the line blasphemy. And then he just starts to talk about himself so much. Don't you find it impolite when someone is just, me, 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 I, 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 I. But in verses 35 to 40, Jesus uses I, me, or my 17 times. And he claims such godlike things about himself. I have come down from heaven. I have been sent by God. God is my Father. I have the right to give eternal life. And this just winds them up something chronic. And to them, just to their, their human capabilities, it was preposterous that Jesus could be claiming these things about himself. I mean, just from a human point of view, is this not the Jesus whose mother we grew up with and whose dad made our kitchen table? I mean, how can he claim he has come down from heaven? One guy says, I, uh, if he had angel's wings and arrived in a fiery chariot, it might have been different. But he was so ordinary, so human. They take offense because they cannot see past his humanity to his identity as God. See, Jesus wasn't content with them just making this connection between himself and Moses. Look with me at verse 32. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. They knew the story of Moses feeding the Israelites in the Old Testament. It wasn't Moses who fed the people. It wasn't that when they all went to sleep at night, Moses nipped down to the 24-hour Asda, bought up all the Warburtons, spread it around the ground so that when they woke up, oh look, Moses had provided bread. No, God gave the bread. To say that Moses fed the people would be to say like this little boy with the happy meal had fed the 5,000. See, the connection that Jesus wants them to make is not between Moses and himself, but between Moses' God and himself. The reason that Jesus fed the 5,000 was to reveal to them that the man who satisfied their bellies in the present was the God of Israel past. I think that's why he supplies 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Here in this man, Jesus, is the God who is able to satisfy the 12 tribes of Israel. This miracle was a sign to point them beyond the bread itself to the identity of Jesus as the God-man, as God the Son. Now, they understood this in part, but they took it as blasphemy, and they took offense. But on top of that, they then took offense, secondly, at the cross of Jesus. Look at them arguing in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? They take offense at his cross. See, when Jesus fed the 5,000, this crowd started to kind of place on Jesus all their slavish expectancies, all their selfish desires. They began to treat him like some kind of action man that they could dress up in any outfit they want depending on what their desires were. So in verse 14, they want to put him in a king's outfit. Or just like Moses was a liberator, a freedom fighter for his people, freeing them from the oppression of uh, Pharaoh, maybe we could make Jesus our king. 
who can be our freedom fighter and liberate us from Caesar. And they project this idea onto Jesus. Oh, he could come in handy. Or look in verse 26. Jesus confronts them with the truth that they just want to dress him up to be a convenient fast food franchise who can satisfy their bellies. They completely missed the point of the sign. The sign of the feeding of the 5,000. The point of a sign is to point beyond itself, isn't it? But they had acted like the little kid on Christmas morning who gets a present but is more obsessed with playing with the box that it came in rather than the toy itself. You know that? It's many point to something better. That's the point of a sign. So if you're driving from Edinburgh to London, you jump on the motorway and you see the first sign that says London. You don't stop the car, get out and Oh, London's a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> you see a hubcap at the side of the road and you say, oh, the London eye's smaller than it looks on the telly. Uh, no, the point of the sign is to say, okay, go there. The bread was a sign to point beyond itself. They were obsessed just with the bread. What's the problem with normal bread though? Well, in verse 27, it spoils. It goes moldy. In verse 35, it does not satisfy that crowd of 5,000 that he fed would be hungry again by dinner time. And in verse 49, it doesn't eradicate death. We're told, yet they died. See, if they were projecting their own expectations onto Jesus, all that they would be left with was empty stomachs, moldy breads, and full graveyards. But Jesus says the bread points beyond itself to me. Look at verse 33. The bread of God is what? He who came down from heaven. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Verse 51. This is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Verse 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The bread pointed not only to the identity of Jesus, but to his violent death upon a cross. A day when actually his body would be broken and blood would gush forth. See, the eating and drinking in verse 54 is only a metaphor of the coming and believing in verse 40. But they're offended even by this cannibalistic metaphor. Imagine how much more offended they'll be in a year's time when we get not just a metaphor, but the reality of a man hanging on a cross. They take offense. Not only because drinking blood was forbidden in the law of Moses, they couldn't conceive of a king who would die in such weakness, such shame. And so they took offense, and they turn their back, and they walk away. Hear this. Jesus is not about giving bread to hungry people. He is about giving eternal life to dying people. The crowd should not have excitedly conformed Jesus to their own desires. They should have been terrified by him, like the disciples in the boats. If you're if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here tonight, can I just say two things before you 
go away offended. If you're investigating this person of Jesus, please do not do as they did by projecting your own perceptions onto Jesus, by projecting onto him your own expectations. He does not promise to play the doctor who will get rid of your cancer or the matchmaker who will solve your singleness or the uh, bank manager who will solve your financial crisis. His concerns are not purely or mainly uh, earthly and temporary. They are eternal and heavenly. So if you project your own expectations onto Jesus, the chances are you'll come away disappointed and offended. And I would just ask you, meet him in his word, on his terms, and on his priorities. And secondly, Jesus would gently ask you, are you working for bread that spoils? This world is shouting to us, isn't it, that everything is perishing. So the fact that you need a fridge in your kitchen, or the fact that everything you buy in a supermarket has a used-by date on it, or the fact that we use anti-aging cream or hair dye or the fact that we need funeral parlors is all a reminder that this world is spoiling. And Jesus just gently says, although everything else is spoiling around you, there is a part of you that shall endure for eternity. And it cannot be satisfied by repeat custom in the pubs of Edinburgh or a series of initials after your name or even an extra zero on your bank budget. See, to do that will only leave you in a kind of ascending spiral of dissatisfaction and will leave you with an empty stomach, moldy bread, and a full graveyard. Are you laboring for food that spoils? Well, as we saw, the same sun that both melts the ice also hardens the clay. Though the majority turn their back, there is this minority who cannot conceive of leaving. Who would we go to, Lord? So second question, why can they not conceive of leaving? Why is it that they see the same things, the identity in the cross of Jesus, and cannot comprehend walking away? Well, firstly, guess where we're going? They believe in his identity. Now, it's worth noticing more of what this identity is. Part of the offense of his identity was that he was claiming the attributes and acts of God as his own. So let's take one of those attributes. In this chapter, God is described as being the bountifully generous giver. The word give comes up 13 times in this chapter. And it is used exclusively of God. But what's interesting is it is said of God the Father, and of God the Spirit, and of God the Son. Look with me at verse 32. In verse 32, God's generosity is seen in that he does what? He gives true bread, that is his Son, to his people. Go down one more verse, verse 33. God the Son, Jesus, the one who comes down from heaven, does what? gives life to the world. And then go to verse 63. What does God the Spirit do? He gives life. Jesus' attribute of being prolific in giving, as is seen in the feeding of the 5,000, gives away his identity as God the Son. 
gives away his identity as part of the Trinity. Now this giving is not exclusively seen in God's relationship with the world. Go behind that one more step. God's generosity is seen perfectly in his relationship in eternity between himself and his son. See, this is where this chapter gets big. Look at verse 37. This is in eternity. All that the Father gives Jesus will come to me. Then look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. So why have these few, rather than turn their back on Jesus, come to him? It is because God the Father has gifted them to his Son. Now take that a step further. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Now that word enabled is actually the word give. So it literally reads, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been given to him by my Father. Even their belief in Jesus is a gift from God the Father. Why is it that they cannot leave? Well, we're left with this twofold reason. On the one hand, in eternity, God the Father has given them to his Son. And on the other hand, in history, God the Father has gifted them belief in the Son. Jesus' point is that it is impossible for humans on their own ability without divine help to believe in Jesus unless God generously takes the initiative and enables them, gifts them belief in his son. Think back to Jesus walking on the water. Just as the disciples needed Jesus to break into their darkness and speak a word of self-revelation to them, so to we in the darkness of our unbelief need Jesus to break through that and God to gift us the ability to believe in his son. And in seeing this, the disciples just cry out, Lord, to whom shall we go? They see his identity as the son of God. And they say, Lord, to whom? To whom else could we go? Now, another brief bit of application here, if you are someone who wouldn't call themselves a Christian. So long as you remain confident of your own ability to understand this person of Jesus, you will just remain frustrated. Remain in misunderstanding. There is a need, not for, not for a gullibility, but for a right humility that says, do you know what, I may need some outside help on this one. Well, they see his identity on the one hand, but disciples who cannot leave Jesus also see his cross and believe in that. Look at verse 40. We get the language here of looking to Jesus and believing in him. But that language in verse 40 is, a, is corresponding to the language of verse 53, that we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Their belief in Jesus is not just placed in his identity as God, but in his flesh as a man. 
And in verse 51, he gives this flesh. Why? For the life of the world. Life for the world comes at the expense of violent death for Jesus. And Jesus is keen to focus our attention on his flesh. So verse 56 says, pretty brutal language, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. What a description of what it means to be a Christian. Stunning simplicity. I live because of Jesus. Is that not phenomenal? I live because of Jesus. Because he gave his life for the world, I live because of him. Because he died bearing the judgment I deserve, I live because of him. You see the stunning generosity of the Father in that he gives his Son even to a world that would hate him and crucify him so that I might live because of him. You see the stunning generosity of the Son in that he gives his very own life for a world that would hate him so that I might say, I live because of him. And you must understand, he had to be both the God of the Trinity and the man who had real flesh and blood. See, unless he was the God of the Trinity, he could not satisfy that longing inside of you that is infinite, eternal, that cannot be satisfied by normal bread. If he was not God, then he could not have satisfied the infinite wrath of God against my sin. And unless he was a man with real flesh and real blood. He could not have been the one who died in my place on his cross. And so because the word became flesh, he gave his life for the world that we might live because of him. And so the disciples seeing this say, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. If you're not a Christian, it may be tonight that God the Father is doing that work of drawing you, wooing you away from the moldy bread of this world, creating in you a discontent for your empty stomach, that he may be rescuing you from one of those graves that ought to be filled by you and calling you to believe on his son who gave his life for the world that you might live because of him. And you are being drawn into very safe hands. This has just bowled me over this week. Get this. God the Father considers you as so valuable that he would count you as a worthy gift to give to his most beloved son. And so valuable are you as a gift from his father to the son that he says of you, I shall never, ever lose you. See, the, because your salvation is wrapped up in the sovereignty of the Trinity, it is assured for eternity. You are being drawn into very 
safe hands. And so I long tonight that you would understand the polarization between these two groups. The difference in the final destiny of these two groups. On the one hand, it is said of them, they live because of me. And on the other hand, it just says, yet they died. On the one hand, told that on that final judgment day, they will be raised to eternal life. On the other hand, told that on that final judgment day, they will be raised to eternal hell. And so God says, believe on this son. Eat his flesh, drink his blood, come to him, look to him, that you might live because of him. Now John the writer determines that we finish our time together on a pretty sobering note for those of us who are disciples of Jesus. He sounds a note of needful self-examination. Because he says, even from this twelve would come one who could aptly be called a devil. Even from within the few, he speaks of Judas, who would betray him. Judas would be one who ultimately would labor for food that's spoiled. He preferred the feel of silver coins in his hands to embracing the flesh and blood of Jesus. And we're told by doing that, he proved himself to be one who was not chosen. In John 13, 18, Jesus makes a pretty sharp distinction between his disciples whom he had chosen and Judas. And it is said of him, it would have been better if he had never been born. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then heed this warning and lay hold fastly of Christ. Do not labor for the food that spoils. And let the tombstone of Judas be one of the means by which Jesus um, causes you to never be lost by him. Let me read some words from John Flavel. He writes about Judas. Judas had the best means of grace that ever a man enjoyed. He heard Christ preach He joined often with Christ in prayer, but he was never the better for it all. It was but the watering of a dead stick, which will never make it grow, but rot it the sooner. Never was there a more rotten branch so richly watered as he was. Oh, it is a sad sign and a sad sin too when men and women live under the gospel from year to year and are never the better. I warn you, beware of these evils, all you that profess religion. And let the footsteps by which Judas went down to his own place terrify you from following him in them. It could have been said upon the tombstone of Judas, let everyone that beholds me learn to be godly indeed, to be sincere in his profession, and to love Christ more truly than I did. The example of Judas is there to make us cling wholly, tightly to Christ. To labor for the food that endures to eternal life. That we might be one that Christ never loses.
we live because of him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is our temptation daily to focus our eyes on food that spoils. And yet we pray that we would see not only the foolishness of this, but the sinfulness of this. That it leads not only to empty stomachs and moldy bread, but also to full graveyards. And Father, how we thank you, how we delight in the gift of your Son, who would give himself for the world, that we might live because of him. Oh, please, grant us belief in this Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name.